2: Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates.
4: Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. This week, we're having a really important discussion about institutional racism, and particularly the effects that this has on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in the workplace. We're first joined by Carrie Klim, who's a Kuku Yolenji and Koko Lama Lama woman based in Minjin on unceded Yagara and Turbal land. Kerry speaks about her experiences of navigating institutional racism in the workplace at a major humanitarian organization where she works for nine years. She also takes us through some of the physiological and psychological effects of everyday institutional racism and we're very grateful to her for sharing her story. We're then joined by Associate Professor Chelsea Wattegoat, who's a Munanjali and South Sea Islander woman. Chelsea's work has drawn attention to the role of race in the production of health inequalities. She's a founding member of Inala Wangara, which is an indigenous community development association, and she's a director of the Institute for Collaborative Race Research. Chelsea discusses the embeddedness of institutional racism across different sectors, including the NGO sector and academia, and the particular burden that is placed on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when both navigating these systems and speaking truth to power. This is Carrie Klim on Women on the Line. Kerry, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
5: Ah, uh, yeah, Yundi, Yalada, Priya, Nagubori Keri, Gugu yallangi Yala So, uh, as I'm introducing myself, I'm acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which I'm yawning to you today in Mianjin, which is the Turrbal and Yagura people.
4: To sort of start out, could you tell us a bit about your own background, I guess, in the media and communications world, and what motivated you to move into the NGO sector?
5: Yeah, so a bit of a background about myself. I uh, grew up in Cairns, in Far North Queensland, in the 70s and 80s, showing my age. And a very defining moment in my childhood was in the, I was about grade 10, so about 1986. There was lots of coverage in the local news, the Cairns post on television about Indigenous people, Aboriginal people who had come down from the Cape, going to the Cairns hospital, getting help. Appointments and the stories were around Aboriginal people in the parks on the Esplanade and causing a disturbance. And it really angered me because I knew the true story in terms of why Indigenous people were there. There was no places to stay. um, The history of colonisation, but you know the background was never provided in these news reports and. It was a defining moment for me because I, from that moment, wanted to be a journalist and a journalist that worked in commercial or mainstream media because I didn't see any Aboriginal people in the media, um, on television or in the papers. And so I embarked on this career of journalism. I went to university. I studied journalism. I worked in journalism for quite some time in commercial and Indigenous media, across print, radio and television, And then I happened to get a job in government, Queensland government, in communications. And they wanted someone to work on trying to promote and get more Indigenous foster carers. And from that moment, I realised how poorly governments and um, agencies were communicating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as their audience. So I felt very strong about improving the way governments, not-for-profits, anyone spoke to us communicated with us. And then I was a humanitarian at heart. And so I really wanted to work for an agency that was aligned with my humanitarian values.
4: Mm. When you joined this humanitarian organization, what were some of the, the things that you started experiencing there? And um, what was your sort of position in the organization?
5: started this organisation, there was another Aboriginal person at the start in this department. It was a quite a huge department, a mega department of about 160 people and my role was to communicate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stories, write stories about our work in this space and this huge mega department worked in media, communications, fundraising, marketing. So it was quite huge. Um, and there was another Aboriginal person at the start that they left into another role. So I was alone quite quickly in this big department, and I felt it. It was quite isolating, the bombardment of questions on me, but also me questioning them um, and their behaviour, their communication. And the very first thing I did question straight away was, although my role was to write about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander projects, and stories and our work, fundraising never uh, promoted it. So it was never promoted as a way to, you know, ask people to donate. I asked the fundraising team and said, "Well, wh- why don't you? You promote every everyone else and all these other projects and programs in our organisation. Why not our work here?" And they said because the statistics show and their research shows that Australians don't want to donate. To Aboriginal pressure on the program and that was really that was really hard to hear. I thought, Well, why am I here? And I asked this many times and many times that same answer came back to me and I pushed and pushed and I said, Well, you don't know if you don't try and I, I worked in this organisation for nine years and I think about my year seven of pushing they eventually did put it in one of their tax components and it was amazingly received.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think this also speaks to the sort of broader NGO landscape in so-called Australia where there is a really, I guess, uneasy relationship with thinking about, you know, white saviorism overseas versus a lack of understanding about how to engage properly with people on stolen land.
5: Absolutely. They just continued that narrative. And... By continuing that narrative, I questioned what was I doing in this organization? Why did they want me there? Over that nine-year period, I was the only aboriginal person in this department. Not once did they look at employing more aboriginal people, and it wore me down. It really wore me down and the way they treated me, they ignored me. You know, I felt like they belittled me. I asked questions And I would explain and it's like, I don't know, it's hard to to explain because I didn't really understand why they didn't understand. It was really exhausting, depressing, and my mental health quite rapidly deteriorated.
4: Mm. What you're talking about there as well sort of speaks to this. Uh, really toxic push-pull between positioning you as a Black woman in the organisation, as you know, sort of valued employee because you are the only Aboriginal employee in that in that department, but then this process of tokenization, but also extracting extra labour from you to sort of educate people about things that go above and beyond your role.
5: Seriously, all the time. The position that I entered into this organisation is the position that I remain after nine years. I did not move anywhere up the chain. And I was never really asked, but I was asked of extra labour. Absolutely. I mean, educating is exhausting. Educating non-Indigenous people day in, day out is really exhausting. And, you know, I'd wake up and think, put your armour on, get ready, because I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't know what question will be asked. I don't know what will be, you know, required of me. And honestly, some of the blows were really bruising, and one really horrible moment, which was the lowest of low, was when a really horrible speech was written that contained extremely racist content. I said, how did this come about? I was really shocked and angry, disappointed, so many emotions, and they just couldn't answer me. I took stress leave, and when I returned, I said, we need to change. This cannot happen again. This is you know, toxic, this is damaging. And the question was, what should we do? And I said, we need anti-racism workshops. I will not hear any more about solutions to this racial violence. And I call it racial violence because of the way that it was impacting me and impacting my body, my mental health. And I said, no more cultural competency because that's not clearly working. No more diversity and inclusion because that's not working because I'm the only person here, you're not even diversifying. You're not including me. No more referring to the Reconciliation Action Plan because it's not about relationships. It's about racism. It's clear. So I said, we need anti-racism workshops. It's the only way to tackle it. And initially, it was agreed to, and then I researched and found Indigenous X provided workshops. I said, this is fantastic. Please, can we implement this here? And they there was no funding <laughs> implement it and it's just not good enough
4: I was wondering if you could speak to the sort of use of a language and co-optation that the sector kind of employs to avoid having these challenging uh, conversations
5: I think even the word racism for a start it's racial violence it's violent because as the victim and how it affected me physically emotionally mentally it needs to be expressed as violence. It's not unconscious bias, it's not covert racism. it is absolutely racial violence. And I think white people have created these terminologies to make it sound less violent for what it is. So let's be clear, it is violence. it is racial violence. As an Aboriginal person, I towards the end of my time there, it was very clear that I was distraught. things and I wasn't well I was crying every day in meetings Um, nobody was really that concerned they said to me what can we do okay there was this question what can we do how can we help and I said stop being racist but they just didn't know what that meant and I said well I'm explaining that the way that you're behaving is having this impact on me ignoring me belittling me not recognizing me for my value, for my worth. (laughs) These are all racist actions. Still, they weren't able to change that behavior. Now, what happens in this situation is, for pretty much every black person that might be listening to this, is you then become fearful for your employment. Because as soon as you start to speak or white people see you having mental health issues, you know that's gonna be a weapon to be used against you. So you t- really tried to hold it in, and I really did try to hold it in. But ultimately, I was, um, I was broken. And this is what needs to be spoken more about. Racial violence impacts people's health in lethal ways. I had to leave for my health, but it's not, it's not improved. I see to counsellors, and it's a daily work. I said I was the only Aboriginal person in this department. If I was the only woman in a workplace of 160 and there were 159 men and just one woman, I don't think that would be allowed, you know, honestly. But but they think that it's okay to have one Aboriginal person who has to uphold every element of communication, who has to see every piece of communication, who has to ensure things are done correctly, respectfully. They didn't see any problem with that. And yet, over that period, they... You know, they gave me accolades, they got awards, they sent me a leadership courses even. And it made me think, I feel like I've stepped back in time. I, I really did. Because they were stealing my intellect, they were stealing a piece of me, and they were just patting me on the head going, you're a good black, keep going, you know, here's a few awards. It was really, it's quite soul story. I hear many times people go, oh, thank you. We've learnt so much, you know, in, in interactions, and I explain what happened. Oh, we've learnt so much. Well, what did I get out of it? Really, in this interaction, you say that you've learnt, but I uh, honestly don't believe that because we'll probably be back here in another couple of days talking about the same thing. But what, what do I get out of this interaction where you're learning? You're exhausting me. You're taking a piece of me. You are not giving back to me. There's, there's no reciprocal exchange. And I don't know That's what reconciliation is supposed to be built on, but I certainly don't see that. There's many things that I think about when I think about what's occurring to me and how I'm being ignored, I've made complaints, I spoke up, I did everything that I thought possible to be heard, to be understood, and behaviours never changed. I was gas, why did people double down on their behaviour against me? And I spoke my truth. I started to speak up and speak my truth more and more. And that felt good for me. And then suddenly I thought, but things are not changing. People are, are, people are not h- still hearing. And I, and I was like, no, 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 no. And I saw Dr. Chelsea Bond say one day, healing comes not from suddenly being believed, but in being loved enough to be deemed worthy of justice. And in that moment, I realized people know what happened to me. People believe me, that's not disputed, but nobody believes that I should be loved enough to be deemed worthy of justice. And this is where we are as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. It's undisputed fact of what happened at colonisation, stealing our children, stealing our land, stealing our languages, stealing us, stealing our money. It continues daily and the intergenerational trauma. But Australian non Indigenous people do not believe that we're worthy enough of justice. That's what it boils down to.
4: Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me to share your story. I know it's been really challenging and I just am very, very grateful to you for taking the time to, to speak with me about it.
5: Thank you also for allowing me to have my voice. Thank you, Priya.
4: You're listening to Women on the Line on your local community radio station. And we just heard an interview with Carrie Klim, who's a Kuku Yalanji and Koko Lama Lama woman, and who joined us to discuss her experiences of institutional racism at a major humanitarian organization in so-called Australia. Next up, we're joined by Associate Professor Chelsea Watigo, who's a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman, and who provides more context around settler colonialism and institutional racism. Chelsea, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, this is—it's a big, heavy discussion to talk about institutional racism, racism in the workplace, but also the different kinds of labour and performances that are extracted from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in colonial institutions. But I was wondering if maybe we could start by talking, I guess, in a bit of a general sense about the effects um, and operation of institutional racism. What kind of relationship does this have to settler colonialism, but also, I guess, anti-blackness in the colony?
6: There's a really unfortunate kind of way of trying to understand racism in this time of um, trying to trying to work out if it's real and how much of it there is. And if you talk to any black fella about any subject, I guarantee you, you can find that racism exists, and it's every day. It's, uh, you know, I think it's Goldberg. It's, it's part of the air that we breathe. It's everywhere. Racism is in the NGO sector. It's in government organisations. It's on the floors of parliament. It's everywhere. So black fellows everywhere and every day have to navigate and strategise around it. And we've been doing that for generations now. And I think that's why I get a bit annoyed at the race scholars who suggest that we need to read more on race to understand it. Because what they fail to understand is black fellows have long had to theorise around how to survive in a a racist and violent social world. See, the thing is, people aren't really worried about racism. They're worried about being accused of being racist. So what they'll do is they'll do things to not be seen as racist. They will never remedy the racism. And so as much as we have to be honest with ourselves about organisations and their claims to care for black girls and just know that they don't, they don't care about black girls, We also have to then not expect that that somehow transforms once they're subject to a complaint. It won't. And, in fact, they'll up the ante because they've got to now really defend their image. And white people's commitment to not being seen as racist is pretty, pretty strong. And they've become so, so effective at it. They intellectualise it. I mean, look, we have unconscious racism now, which, for the record, is not a thing. It's not an actual thing. It's, I believe, what we call a settler move to innocence. It's not a thing, it's an invention to make sure that white fellows are never held accountable for their racism. So we're always reminded of their innocence. And the other thing they do is they they come up with solutions for the future racisms. So they are never attend to what happened. And this is where black fellows get portrayed by the complaint process. And of course Ahmed's talked about complaining, you know, so it's not new. But what we know is that they'll never apologize, they'll never confess to it. They will never fix it. Any kind of outcome that black fellows get through these processes will be to keep black people quiet so that the organisation doesn't appear racist. So we have to be honest about how race plays out in these processes. We even know the race discrimination process. You go through conciliation through the Queensland Human Rights Commission, guarantee race is playing out in every step of that process because you'll be the one black person in a room full of white people. You'll get a support person, but they can't speak, yet the other party can get a lawyer who can represent them. So the processes that the perpetrators construct for themselves are designed to protect the perpetrator, even the external ones to those organisations. So if we know races every day and everywhere, we should never, ever entertain the idea that somehow through the complaint that that will magically disappear and justice will arrive for us. It won't. But that doesn't mean we don't complain. And I think what's really powerful about um, Kerry's action is she's done what a lot of black women have had to do, and that is to go to the public square and call on everyone else to hold these people accountable. Because we know that for these institutions, we know in the colony, we're deemed not worthy of anything. So why would our one complaint get heard? Why would anyone respond to that? And this is where solidarity gets tested. If someone's calling it out, we do have to step in and step up and be as courageous if not more as the victim of racial violence because we know that um even in naming it they're still not protected
4: yeah it's very much that you know the standard you walk past is the standard you accept and A lot of concerns around institutional racism and racism in the workplace, you know, you get after the fact statements about people saying, oh, you know, I noticed that there was, this was a problem, but it's about being courageous enough to take action in that moment to actually support people and to stand up to these institutions as it's happening and all throughout that process, rather than once a complaint has been raised.
6: And also, it's not enough to tell victims of racial violence to take care of themselves. I'm really over that. And I hear a lot. Yeah, you know, I've written about it, but I'm I, I just, this idea that in complaining about the racism we experience, that in speaking about its violence, that we're not taking care of ourselves, that's the ultimate form of self-care is to tell the truth about the violence our body is subjected to every damn day, even though we know there's a price we paid. So, you know, on the one hand, I feel for sister as she shares the heartbreak that she's living every day, but at the same time I also know that it's because she knows that she is worthy of better, that she is deserving of better, that she's speaking. And that says to me um, something about the strength of her in the midst of all the stuff that she's had to deal with. And I think we, we, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Uh, I think there's this idea that black blackfellas um, um, as victims can never transcend that sense of victimhood. But there's power there, and people watching need to, to take note of that. And but also, we also have to remember our power in, in these moments that are meant to render us powerless. There's no way of winning, no matter. And this is, I mean, this is the ultimate kind of gasoline There's no way of winning in terms of how we respond to racism, because if 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 we are broken, the story is that we're just not strong enough. We're just not good enough. But if we still deliver in spite of, then it suggested that racism didn't affect you either. And you know, I, there's part of me that used the strategy of outperforming, that the work still stood, that they couldn't take my work from me, that they couldn't deny that. Oh, they can, and they actually use your work to deny your account of racial violence and the toll that it takes on. Because, you know, fellows pay a price for it anyway, whether it's at home or at work. We pay a price for the racism we experience. And any given day we have to make choices, or we don't even get the choice to make about how it impacts and which one it impacts and the guilt that comes with all of that. And so I think the other thing that we have to do, and what I often talk to people about who are experiencing this, is to not blame themselves for the things that are happening to them that's the that's the real violence here is that somehow we we think that it's something that we did and if we just worked harder and it's it's like women in abusive relationships you know if i just if I just did this and maybe this would change we hear I hear that a lot from black fellows in the workplace, men and women thinking if i just if I just did all these things, then maybe they would they would do this or they you know they wouldn't treat me like that and it's like no no <laughs> it's not about your behaviors it's about theirs. I think we have to be courageous when it comes to race. There are two sides, the right side and the wrong side. And I make no apologies for punching up and for calling out. I look forward to the day where we just, we don't sit back as neutral arbiters of racism or that we even think that that's a legitimate position to hold because it doesn't exist. You know, the objective stance is the one that sides with the perpetrator. It's just the end. So I think there's, there's a responsibility here. It's not, so I'm less interested in institutions and policies and procedures and rules about managing racism. I'm interested in it as a collective. How do we create a culture around what we accept when it comes to race and racism and, and how we then tackle it? And as black fellas, how we deal with it and as people of color, what do we do? What do we do about it in spite of their staff? How do we understand what they're doing so we strategize it better? Outcome that just protects us a little bit, and, and how do we get more people taking up the fight against race, so that we're not all copying the uh, the brunt of it and being accused of always being hostile or aggressive, or you know, yeah, it gets tiring. And I going to spend much of my, I'd rather spend more of my time building things than having having to call stuff out, and I have to balance my labour around that. So I think there just needs to be more people stepping up and doing the work and taking up the fight instead of trying to argue over who's got the best theory around
4: race. I think that's such a good way to close off because it is that really strong reminder that nobody is outside of this. We're all in these relationships. We're all, you know, in relation in some way to one another. And therefore stepping up is just a part of actually saying, you know, I am committed to to the people in my community. I'm not going to let this slide. I'm going to challenge it.
6: Yeah, and I think the exciting work to come intellectually around race in this place is understanding some of these strategies, learning from them and sharing that knowledge and sharing those stories rather than the kind of does race exist, doesn't it, how much racism is there kind of stuff, it's how do we strategize the fight against fight against race. Um, and that's the really fun part of the work we get to do in terms of building this Indigenous health humanities as a new field of research is to build an intellectual collective that grapples with some of those issues. Or how we of service to people who experience racial violence and understand through their acts what is success, what is justice, you know, what does that feel like on, on blackfellas' terms? What what might that mean? And so I think there's some in you know, amongst all of this, there's some really exciting work to be done that we can do that armors up the next generation for the occupation they enter into when it's their time.
4: That was an interview with Associate Professor Chelsea Wadigo, who's a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman, and who joined us to expand on this really important discussion about institutional racism. I'm Priya Kunjan. That's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for listening.
7: Thanks to Priya Kunjan there for those discussions with Kerry Klim and Associate Professor Chelsea Wadigo about the effects of racism on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and how they resist racism every day. You can catch the full episode at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. You're
8: with... Jacob and Fung on 3CR Breakfast, welcome to uh, today's show. Um, it's Monday, the 26th of July. Um, welcome.
7: Welcome. Thanks for joining us. So up next, we've got a piece from Giselle Hanna from 3CR's Asia Pacific Currents, who is joined by Sujata, a social justice and labor movement activist based in Mumbai, and Sajata's is going to be discussing the effects of COVID-19 on workers in India. Sajata opens the show with an introduction about herself.
9: I'm Sujata. Um I've been part of the, uh, the, the feminist movement and the labour movement for the last uh, about 40 years or more. Um, I'm part of an organisation called Forum, which is a women's organisation. Uh, and I've been associated with various uh, uh, labour groups uh, earlier, uh, and I worked uh, briefly for about uh, uh, half a decade with uh, uh, International Union of Food Workers, and I've been part of uh, the labour scene in Maharashtra.
2: Here in Australia, we've been watching the uh, tragic situation unfold in India. We understand that you're up to 400,000 transmissions a day of COVID.
9: Instead of ramping up the health system and getting uh, getting vaccines, et cetera, our government was very busy in uh, in showing off a little bit, in terms a lot actually, in terms of how we have uh, defeated Corona, how we've defeated COVID-19. And so then you have these horrendous. Uh, 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 Pictures and images of of, of deaths all over. Uh, some states more than uh, uh, than others. My state had it quite badly, uh, but, but not not as bad as uh, like Uttar Pradesh, which is the largest in terms of population. Uh, and um, now things are a little bit better in the sense that the 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 number the uh, the number of infections and the number of uh, deaths, mortality, uh, has. Uh, become less but there's there's another talk about the third wave, so one is really very apprehensive and you know uh everybody's very worried of what will happen and there's no sight sight of vaccines uh, uh vaccines may be very very small proportion less than five percent of of the population has had two doses, and about twelve thirteen percent have had one dose. Uh, and, um in India, the percentage, uh, uh, is huge. I mean, you know, you, when you say 1%, it's a huge number. Uh, so when you say that, uh, uh 96% of, of, people are not vaccinated and, uh, not given both the doses, it's, it's really like a very, 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 uh, catastrophic situation. So, so there is a lot of worry as a lot of uh, apprehension that is still, uh, very much there. Uh, and uh, the the uh, situation with regard to the economy is no better. So, you on the one hand you have the corona, uh, the, the COVID-19 virus and the and the disease and the mortality at one level. At another level, there is uh, there are no jobs. Jobs have been lo- I mean, the, the number of jobs that have gone. It's like uh, like just only in May 2021. 20, um, 15.33 million jobs were lost. So uh, uh, it's a very, very worrying uh, uh, situation. Uh, uh, you never know when people will just, you know, uh, 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 slide into starvation, deaths, and stuff like that. So it's really very, uh, very difficult.
2: Yeah. So I'm assuming the job losses and the economic. Um... Collapse is due to lockdowns and and closing things down. Is that is that what has happened in India? Have there been lockdowns?
9: Uh, you know, uh, as you would know, Giselle, um, well over ninety percent, and some say ninety seven percent of uh, of the workers uh, in India uh, belong to what is called the informal economy. Now, informal in economy. When you look at look at look on the ground level situation. It means that if you work today, you will give, be able to put food uh, on the plates of your family and yourself in the evening. Not otherwise. That is the grim situation because there is no social security of any sort here. Uh, so, um, when the lo- first lockdown was was uh, was declared end of March, uh, there was there was uh, a notice of four hours that was given. India is a huge country. A notice of four hours with uh, with uh, stopping all transport, uh, and uh, so pe- uh, a very large proportion of, of uh, people, millions of people, uh, workers uh, are migrant workers because of the because of various situations, including the un- uneven development of the, of states. So you have these states that are uh, that that are migrant senders. Um, So you have uh, Nuki, Bihar, uh, Orissa, Resvegal, Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, uh, uh, large uh, parts of uh, uh, central India send workers to to the west and to the south. And all these people were stranded. Uh, They just couldn't move. And uh, if you you look at the situation of the housing here, uh, there is no housing. So there there are people like seven, eight uh, workers, construction workers, would be living in one room, uh, and, uh, the, the, uh, that is where uh, you were just dumped. You know, you were, you were, you, were, you had to stay in the, the, that room because you couldn't get out. Um, there was no food. So if, if the food was being served by some NGO, you had to go and get it, which, which often the police just to beat you up. And this is really on the ground situation. It's not at all an exaggeration. It's actually, it's a, a very understatement so that is a i mean i uh, uh, am the, situ- the situation of the economy was bad even before covid uh, uh in, in fact uh, the uh, uh, the informal economy had been going down since the uh, the, the di- disastrous uh, experiment of the uh, demonetization because a lot of the economy whether it's agriculture or the informal economy depends on on, on cash and when you when you suddenly 86 percent of the cash is rendered uh, uh, invalid, illegal, um, the entire economy crumbles. So the, the it had begun, the collapse had begun even before uh, uh, the, the uh, 2020 uh, lockdown. Uh, but it was really very strict and almost draconian. That sort of broke the back totally.
2: I forgot about the demonetisation project. I mean, we knew that the global economy was on the brink of collapse prior to COVID and that COVID catalyzed recession in most parts of the world. Um, so it makes sense that India was also on the verge of collapse prior to COVID as well. Yeah. Uh, but we also can't deny that there is a, a pandemic that requires a health Response and you, you talked a little bit about the lack of vaccination, um, but also the ineffectiveness of lockdown because of the sheer volume of people in the country, most of whom live in destitution. How do we fight back? How do we resist the economic collapse? But actually, what should we be asking for to uh, to, to fix the economy and the health crisis? Basically, there are about uh,
9: about uh, seven eight demands that that uh, people on the ground have uh, talked about. One thing is you have to get vaccines. There is no two ways about it, and it has to be free and uh, and uh, universal. So everybody should be. It's, it's not pick and choose, and you you know like uh, some people will get it. Uh, you have to pay money, and some people that's that's not how it uh, it will work. That is one. The other thing is that you really need to ramp up, uh, the health infrastructure, especially in rural areas, but also elsewhere, uh, upgrade it. And, uh, there's a pretty huge amount of backlog. You know, there's, there's, uh, uh, the, the ideal ratio of, say, a nurse to uh, a patient to a nurse, a nurse to a patient would be like one is to three and in operation theaters it's icus etc it's supposed to be one is to one but there have been uh, nurses uh, there have been studies which show that nurses have been have uh, uh, been uh, in some places even even over a 100 people that the nurses had to attend to that's basically because uh, there've been no recruitment of nurses or doctors or of any health personnel um there've been uh, 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 primary health centers that have been completely vacant there are there are uh, a thousand sheep that are uh, that are uh, uh, sort of you know residing in them because they've been not not open for for years together. So ramping up of health system recruiting now filling up vacancies and recruiting health workers is absolutely important. Uh, increasing the health budget like uh, uh, Maharashtra, the state I belong to, it, less than half a percent of of, of the budget uh, is on health and it it has to be at least about 5% i mean you know people people who work in the health movement have have uh, uh, uh worked it out in terms of how much is necessary then we have you know we have very good uh, uh programs the one program is called asha asha would mean accredited as, uh uh Health workers, okay? uh, uh, accredited social health workers, sorry, mm. and uh, uh, they are uh, they are in rural areas. They do enormous amounts of work, but they are not uh, they are not part of the official uh, uh, employment in the uh, health sector. So they are they are uh, they they would be given a thousand rupees, which is absolute peanuts, um, and uh, they have to do a lot of work. They have to travel a lot, and during COVID, they had to go from house to house survey, surveying um, uh, who has COVID, who has COVID symptoms. I mean, so uh, then they, there is there is another entire program called Anganbadi, uh, which is like a like a uh, you know uh, for, ch- for for children below six uh, six years, uh, you know, the working parents can go and keep them. But even they are given absolute peanuts, you know, three thousand, four thousand. So all these systems really need to i mean the systems are quite okay but they but the way they are handled the way uh, the, the lack of dignity that the personnel uh, uh, is subjected to uh is uh, like in in uh, in many places uh we had just recently had four meetings of of uh, various uh, uh women workers in uh, in various sectors and they were saying that that uh, uh they are not even given a, 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 a mask or, or, or uh, sanitizers or any protective equipment, and uh, uh, so, uh, and if they ask, if, if they uh, if they get their own and they ask, they will they will not be they are de- often denied uh, that. So, uh, sometimes uh, uh, some some um, version of a mask is given, but you know it's not uh, it's not updated. It's not something that uh, that is given. As frequently as it should be, uh, so it, especially the, the super lower ranks of the health health, health uh, system are really, you know, like the, the health and safety, their working conditions, uh, the hours of work, uh, everything is just uh, completely inhuman. So all that that needs to change.
8: That was Sujata speaking to Giselle from Asia Pacific Currents about the ongoing effects of COVID in India. Asia-Pacific Currents brings you stories and issues from the Asia-Pacific region with a labour and grassroots perspective. Listen to more episodes from Asia-Pacific Currents at 3cr.org.au slash asia Asia-Pacific Currents airs on 3CR Community Radio on Saturdays at 9am.
4: or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure
6: to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to.
7: Good morning. You're on 3CR with Jacob and Fong. Thanks for joining us.
8: Um, Now looking to the front page of The Age, we thought we'd bring you um, some of the stories um, that are out today and um, I guess what we can expect from the news in the next couple of days. So it looks like um, lockdown in here in Nam or Melbourne is likely to lift, but there are uh, still going to be some restrictions. Um, Daniel Andrews said yesterday that the state was on track to drop uh, lockdown orders because all of yesterday's eleven cases were isolated for their infectious period, which is the first time that this metric has been achieved during the current outbreak, which is pretty good. Um, so, yeah, keep an eye on the news to see, uh, what, uh, we'll be allowed to do, I guess, in the, in the next few days. But, um, yeah, he's hoping that lockdown will be lifted very soon. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, yeah.
7: I've heard we've, we've scored some medals at the Olympics. Yes. Is that correct.
8: Yeah. So also on the front page of The Age, um, there is a, an update from the Tokyo Olympics. Um, we've got some medals. I think this is from swimming, <laughs> looking at the photos. Um, uh, as we all know, the Tokyo Olympics has been quite controversial because COVID is still very much <laughs> um, there in Japan. Um, there are cases every day. We know that there have been athletes as well who have tested positive for covid Um which is, yeah, I guess relevant to today's show because Jacob, you're speaking to someone about, um, the Brisbane Olympics in 2032. Is that right?
7: Yeah, that's correct. It's, it's funny how the Olympics, which is supposed to be such an apolitical and mm. unifying event, um, it's actually can be quite controversial. Um, so later today we'll be speaking to a Greens councillor from Brisbane City Council, Jonathan Shree about the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and chatting a bit about some of the social and environmental impacts that don't really get considered, I suppose, when a a country makes a bid uh, to host the Olympics. Um, But up next, we'll be hearing a bit of a segment from your last Tuesday's episode of Tuesday Home Time about the Murugupin family um, who have been held in detention on Christmas Island for about three years now. And in May, as we know from that very confronting photo of Tharnica, um the four-year-old child, Tharnica was flown to Perth with life-threatening sepsis. And this is not the first time that a refugee has been seriously ill or at risk of death in the conditions that they are detained in. Fortunately, Comcare, the National Agency for Workers' Health and Safety, is undertaking an investigation into Thanaka's medical treatment on Christmas Island, and Jen Bartlett from 3CR's Tuesday Home Time brings this report um, from last Wednesday, last Tuesday. Sorry, she spoke with a, a former prosecuting solicitor for Worksafe Victoria, Max Costello. And just a warning: this story contains mentions of suicide. Max, I know
0: the issue of the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers has been one you've followed closely and actively for a long time. But this one concerning the then three-year-old Tharnica has to be viewed as a breakthrough.
3: Well, this one, uh, as reported in great detail by Rebecca Holt in The Saturday Paper of the 12th of June, this one was a case that was so serious, uh, in a nutshell, uh, little Tharnica Murugappan of the Billawilah Tamil family, uh, the whole family was on Christmas Island uh, since late 2019, August 2019. She was left to get sicker and sicker and sicker until, after you know nearly uh, two weeks, she was flown with her mother Priya as emergency medical airlift to Perth and was taken straight to the Children's Hospital in Perth. So my thinking was when you have uh, a detainee, because they were in an immigration detention facility, a so-called alternative place of detention, a small cabin on Christmas Island, when you let a three-year-old girl get so sick, first with pneumonia apparently, and then towards the end, sepsis, blood poisoning, which is, which can be fatal. Leaving a three-year-old to get that sick in an immigration detention facility was such a shockingly serious apparent criminal offence under the Work Health and Safety Act that I wrote to Comcare and said, this surely requires an investigation with a view to prosecution. So I wrote that letter on the 30th of June, relying, as I say, on Rebecca's details account, and requested a prosecution, and I. Uh, that, so that's it, it's the seriousness that prompted me to to write. I got a reply on the Tuesday of this week, so that's Tuesday the 13th of July, uh, late in the afternoon. I got an email uh, which attached a letter from Comcare as senior um, enforcement officer. I can't remember the exact title, but um, confirming that. To use the strange words, it said an investigation into the medical care of Sarnica, late May, early June, is, quote, an open inspection, uh, unquote. Now, I think that really means that there is an investigation is underway. In my understanding is that um, Comcare inspectors are conducting an investigation into what I say is the alleged extreme medical neglect of um, little Farnica she turned four soon after her arrival in Perth I think she 's now a four year old
0: that means that the investigators go to Christmas Island is that the issue
3: i don 't you since the family is for the time being in perth though they're being given uh, what 's called a a community detention house in Perth to live in the whole family. And Tharnica um, is receiving now outpatient care from the uh, Children's Hospital. It's interesting that the house is, although it's very close to the airport, is 18 kilometres away from the hospital. It's a bit puzzling. But so uh, the whole family, but it's only a three month, Minister Hawke in mid June uh, announced that they were getting a short term visa. Which would last for three months. Mother, Priya and father and would have work rights, but of course, since you're only there for three months and you don't know anyone, and so on, it's a bit artificial. But but they have uh, they're in community detention, if you like. That's the situation at the moment. So I don't think there's any point in going to Christmas Island unless the uh, comcare people want to talk in person to one of the. There was an agent. IHMS doctor. IHMS is the uh, International Health and Medical Services Proprietary Limited. That's that's the company contracted by the Commonwealth Government to provide medical services, health care services to all sorts of immigration detention facilities. So that if they want to talk in person to an IHMS doctor on Christmas Island, they might go there. But uh, whether they do it remotely, uh, I don't know. But um, but of course, the family's not there, so I don't look. I don't know exactly how ComCare will carry out its investigation. The, the usual course is that investigators, like ComCare federally, I used to um, be an inspector, a, a solicitor with WorkSafe in Victoria, and the inspectors usually get documents first and then do interviews later. But uh, look, so that's up to ComCare. I don't know exactly how they'll go about their investigation
0: how is this investigation different to the one about the refugee who committed suicide at Bellawood
3: well it's very similar the um, yes on the 3rd of march this year uh, the commonwealth director of public prosecutions relying on a brief of evidence in other words an investigation by comcare laid two charges uh, one each against Home Affairs, which is in effect, uh, which operates the, all the detention facilities. Actually, it's the Australian Border Force Unit within Home Affairs that is uh, directly in charge of uh, detention facilities. Uh, two charges against Home Affairs, two against you know, IHMS uh, in relation to a Villawood detainer, Villawood's in Sydney, Villawood Detention Centre detainee, who committed suicide in 2019? I think the suicide prompted, uh, I'm guessing, the Comcare to investigate. Investigation took a while and it wasn't until almost two years later that the charges were laid. But it's very similar. Here's a case of very serious alleged health neglect of a detainee and all the, that Villawood, the Christmas Island um, little cabin. They're all detention facilities, one sort or another, and therefore their Commonwealth, immigration is a Commonwealth matter, therefore they're Commonwealth workplaces, therefore the Commonwealth Work, Health and Safety Act applies. So in each case, the Villawood one and the uh, current investigation of the Christmas Island one, Comcare inspectors will be investigating to see what, if any, breaches of the Work, Health and Safety Act uh, have allegedly been committed It's very similar. It's uh, apparently very serious set of breaches and and Comcare will investigate to ascertain whether in fact there is evidence to the criminal standard of proof so that if they they do find evidence to the criminal standard, well again they would put a brief of evidence to the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions and she would decide yes or no to lay charges. But that's We're way ahead of ourselves. It's only just the start of an investigation and who knows what, if anything, um, might ensue.
0: Well, just explain what Category 1 entails.
3: Well, a Category 1 offence is the most serious offence, level of offending under the Health and Safety Act. Charges themselves, uh, potential charges, I should say, and I should add Home Affairs, Border Force, IHMS, They are, of course, like any party being investigated, they are entitled to the presumption of innocence. We can't assume by any means that uh, evidence of criminal offending will be found or not. It's only an investigation at this stage. They're they're entitled to the presumption of innocence. But under the Act, there are health and safety duties, um, and uh, is looking to see whether any of those duties uh, have been... Breached, but if you breach a health and safety duty, that is, you potentially commit a criminal offence, and then the Act goes on to sort those potential offences uh, or that potential offending into three levels of seriousness. And the Category 1 is by far the most serious. It says, in effect, uh, you commit a Category 1 offence if you have a health and safety duty. Now, there's no doubt about that, Home Affairs to force, IHMS, they have the health and safety duty. But then it goes on to say that having that duty, you allegedly, without reasonable excuse, engaged in conduct that exposed person at the workplace to a risk of death or serious illness. And then thirdly, you, that is the workplace operator, you were reckless as to that risk. Now that's a very steep, uh, you know, proving recklessness is is, is pretty complex that's category one category two says you had a health and safety duty you failed to comply with it and that failure exposed uh, a workplace person to a risk of death or serious injury or illness category three the lowest level is just you had a health and safety duty and you failed to comply with that duty and the penalties vary accordingly it's a three million dollar maximum fine for a government department or a company under the most serious one category one it's a 1.5 million maximum fine under category two the middle one and the lowest level category three it's it's a maximum fine for a company or a government department of half a million five hundred thousand so there's sort of a sliding scale.
0: Max would you agree that the, that the risk is worse on offshore islands
3: I'd better clarify, the more remote a place is and the lower the level of medical and hospital and other care because of that remoteness, well, the more remote the place is or less well served by health the more the risk, especially if something happens very quickly. If there's a, you know, uh, I, I'm not a doctor. I used to be a lawyer, but I'm, I'm retired. But if, if, for example, something very, very serious happens without any warning and the local healthcare can't deal with it, then you need a, an emergency medical airlift. Now that was a problem back when there were regional processing centres operating uh, on Manus Island, Papua New Guinea and, and on the island of Nauru. And uh, one case, uh, a delay in the airlift contributed to the death. Of a, a detainee, a Hamid Karzai, back in 2014, his airlift was delayed by a day, and he had already contracted sepsis, blood poisoning, the one that Dr. Uh, Zanucker apparently had towards the end. And by the time he arrived at Brisbane, at Brisbane Hospital, he was he was brain dead. But, so that's the more remote and less well-equipped the place is, the, the higher the risk for the detainees concerned. But I should just clarify the word offshore. I know Christmas Island is, has got 2,800 kilometres roughly west of Darwin. It's very remote. But technically speaking, it's not, quote, offshore, unquote. Of course, geographically it is, but it's not. It, it's it's a um, an external territory of Australia. So technically, it's, if you like, part of Australia. But certainly the remoteness, yes, it's true. The, there's a very a pretty basic local hospital. It, it was not equipped to deal with uh, I worsening condition.
0: This also possibly contributed to two children on Nauru who were seriously ill.
3: Yes, yes. People might recall that before the so-called Medivac Amendment to the Migration Act that uh, Dr. Karen Phelps uh, Independent managed to organize and get the numbers in Parliament after Turnbull resigned. That amendment made a huge difference because it just needed two treating doctors. It only lasted for less than a year because the Coalition got the numbers again and and persuaded Jackie Lambie to vote with them to repeal the amendment. But but it allowed two treating doctors. If they said someone's very sick on the rue or Manus and uh, can't be treated here, well, the minister concerned had five days to really make a decision. And uh, if the minister just sat on it and didn't make a decision, well, it was deemed to have said, yes, fly them to Australia. So, but before that, that's what you're, talking, you're asking about, Jan. Before that, the only way to get people flown to Australia for urgent, sometimes desperately needed medical care, was to run a court case in the Federal Court of Australia seeking what I call for short a fly them here order. And you mentioned children on Nauru who were. This was back in, in you know, 2014-15, where there, when there still were children on, in detention on Nauru. Some of them were so sick that uh, the judge, the presiding judge, said if 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 I give in to an adjournment sought by Mr, in effect, Mr. Minister Dutton's barrister, that child is is so sick, or in, in a couple of cases they tried repeatedly to commit suicide. The judge said, I'm not granting an adjournment. The child might be dead by the time of the adjournment date. Yes, that happened in a couple of cases. Uh, it's a terrible situation. Fortunately, every application from a fly them, for a fly them here order, it was mainly adults but some children, every application was successful and, and they were brought to Australia for, promptly to a med, for medical care and no, no deaths occurred in, in those Court case in relation to those court cases, but things were getting close to it, I can tell you.
8: That was Jan Bartlett speaking to Max Costello on Tuesday Home Time about the investigation into Thanika Muragapan's medical treatment on Christmas Island and the challenges of seeking medical treatment for offshore refugees. You can catch Tuesday Home Time on 3CR every Tuesday from 4 to 6 pm or visit the website 3 cr
7: You're on 3CR Monday Breakfast, joined by Jacob and Fong. Um, And I never thought 3CR would be talking about sports, but here we are. So last week, as we know, the the International Olympics Committee uh, voted for Brisbane to host the 2032 Olympics. And there's lots of celebration around this decision because it's uh, viewed as something that's going to attract lots of jobs Uh, tourism, make a lot of money, even put Brisbane on the world map. However, there has been some little discussion about the negative externalities of this decision. Now, as we know, hosting the Olympics often brings about housing evictions, unused sporting infrastructure known as white elephants, and the budget is often overspent, leaving some cities worse off. So joining us now is a very special guest, uh, Greens councillor, for Brisbane City Council, Jonathan Shree. Jonathan, welcome to the show.
10: Good morning. Thanks for having me on.
7: Thanks for joining us. So can you tell us um, a little bit, because we are Melbournians and not familiar with, with Brisbane, what's going to happen um, over the next decade to some of the infrastructure around Brisbane?
10: Yeah, so they're basically still working it out. They've recently announced that they want the Gabba Stadium in Wollongabba, which is in my local electorate, to be the the main hosting venue for the opening closing ceremonies and a lot of the athletics events. And then there's a long list of, I think, 30-plus other venues, mostly around southeast Queensland, that they've identified will host. Some some of those are yet to be built, so they're going to have to spend a lot of money building new venues. And, and some, like the Gabba, they're proposing with the Gabba Stadium to spend a billion dollars redesigning it. So it currently has 42,000 seats. They want to be a 50,000-seat stadium, so they been, yeah, a solid $1 billion to make those upgrades. What we're particularly concerned about on the ground is that over the next 10 years, there's going to be rampant property speculation, and that particularly suburbs like Woolloongabba and West End that are close to a lot of the proposed venues are going to see massive rent increases. We know from looking at examples like the Sydney Olympics and also London that what tends to happen is low-income rental accommodation gets converted into short-term Airbnb accommodation or short-term hotel accommodation, and once converted, it doesn't really revert back after the Games. So, yeah, we, we, it seems like the Olympics will be a, a, essentially a mechanism to supercharge gentrification, displacement of low, low-income people. Then on, on top of that, you can expect a massive ramping up of state surveillance and security and impositions on people freedom, you're also likely to see um, money that would otherwise be spent on other essential public infrastructure like public housing or health or education, that's going to get redirected into sports infrastructure that we don't necessarily need. So lots of things to be a little bit concerned about.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And I I read somewhere that to host the Summer Olympics, you need something like 40,000 spare hotel rooms. So definitely a a massive concern. And do you think that this, this infrastructure... Um, will be used post-Olympics, or are we concerned that it might become, uh, as they say, white elephant infrastructure?
10: Yeah, I am concerned about that. There's been a lot of rhetoric about how they're doing the Games differently now, that there's a a new model of operating, that there's a greater emphasis on using existing infrastructure, and and they're also running the line that the Games will be cost-neutral. Basically, what they mean by that is that the revenue from broad casting rights will cover the cost of putting on the games, but when they say the games will be cost neutral, they don't actually include the cost of delivering infrastructure. So it's cost neutral to to run the ceremonies and the events and everything, but on top of that, you've got to build all the stuff you need, and certainly there's uh, a few of those venues that they've proposed building probably won't be needed beyond the Olympics. I think you could reasonably argue that if a stadium like the Gabba gets upgraded, it it will get used, it will continue to get used, and that it's probably better to upgrade and refurbish an existing stadium like the Gabba than it is to build an, a whole new one. But there's a lot of supporting infrastructure that the games require. So for example, for the major venue you also need a warm up track which is almost like a mini stadium. And there's no room for one of those around the Gabba. So they're gonna have to find one somewhere. Um so yeah, there's there's definitely a concern about that. And there's also legitimate concerns about what happens to things like the Athletes' Village afterwards. So common sense would dictate that if you're going to build an Athletes' Village for 10,000-plus athletes, you would turn that over to public housing afterwards. But it seems likely that it will instead become private residential accommodation, and that's what happened after the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games in 2018 as well. They built all this accommodation for the athletes, and then it was essentially privatised by developers and
7: is now being rented out for profit, which is a big lost opportunity. Yeah, definitely, and you mentioned before that there's kind of a, a so-called focus on having a cost-neutral game, so the the government thinks that it's going to bring in about $17 billion in, in economic benefits, um, and based on what you've said so far, do you think it's a, a realistic vision that we will uh, receive that amount of money? I
10: think this rhetoric about economic benefits and job creation really needs a bit of unpacking. The, the first point is that, If you spend billions of dollars of government money on anything, you're going to create a lot of jobs. So the government can spend billions of dollars building stadiums or it can spend billions of dollars building public housing. Either way, it's going to be creating a lot of jobs, but I I know which one I'd prefer. Um, When we talk about economic activity, heck yeah, the Games is going to generate economic growth. There'll be lots of money coming in, there'll be lots of spending, but the real question is who benefits from that? Where does that money actually flow and what we know is that these mega events, the money tends to flow into the pockets of hotel operators, multinational events organising companies, uh, TV broadcasters, etc. The money doesn't actually flow into the pockets of small business owners or local workers. And there's a fair bit of literature around to suggest that while there might be a slight economic boost in terms of uh, job, local job creation, that the negative impact of rapidly increasing house prices, and, and inflation more generally tends to undermine that. So, yeah, people might get some casual work at a bar or they might get a, get some temporary work in, in admin for the games, but their cost of living are going to rise much faster. So, yeah, there's certainly... It's essentially a proposition where the government or taxpayers spend a lot of money on an event and private companies reap the benefits of that economic
7: growth, which isn't a particularly just proposition. For sure, and, and there's also a new focus now on having the Games be uh, carbon-positive or, or carbon-neutral. So, Has the government got a plan to minimise the environmental impacts of hosting the Olympics?
10: Yeah, it's been pretty vague so far, this talk of a carbon-neutral or carbon-positive Games. Personally, I, I struggle to see how hundreds of thousands of people flying into Brisbane from all over the world is ever going to be carbon neutral, The and I think this rhetoric of offset needs to be more strongly critiqued because increasingly in, in big government and big business we're seeing this idea of, oh yeah, we can keep polluting and we can keep generating carbon emissions we just have to pay some company somewhere to plant some trees for us and then we've quote unquote offset it. But there's a big difference between offsetting your emissions and actually not producing fossil fuel emissions in the first place and inevitably a games event like this is going to generate a lot of fossil fuel emissions even if they pretend to offset it somewhere so we haven't really seen any details about yet that yet but i suspect as we've seen with other major projects that describe themselves as carbon neutral that a lot of sources of emissions will be excluded so when they say that the gains will be carbon neutral are they going to include the significant resource burden of rebuilding stadiums and and building new sports infrastructure, or will they conveniently leave that off the ledger and say, oh, yeah, the operations of the game were carbon neutral, but we didn't include all the concrete and steel that went into building the new stadium? Because when you factor in that stuff, there's no way an event like this is actually going to be carbon neutral.
7: Yeah, no, carbon neutral has become a bit of a buzzword, hasn't it, for for some of these projects? (laughs) Mm. Um, And you mentioned before the the rises in property and and cost of living in general. Do you have any other concerns for local residents in your electorate?
10: Yeah, I mean locally there's a whole bunch of little concerns like exactly where the warm-up track's going to go what's going to happen to East Brisbane State School which is nestled right in next to the Gabba Stadium and of course we'd expect several years of serious impacts from construction and noise and dust pollution and all, all that sort of stuff but I think the broader underlying concern, which maybe not many people point, point out or talk about as much, is simply that hosting an event like this becomes a major distraction for the political establishment at all levels of government. So politicians who are they're spending time and, and going to meetings and making decisions about where should the athletes' village go or which stadium should we upgrade or how can we move 500,000 people from this venue to that venue, et cetera, et cetera, when, and that means they have less time available to make decisions about how can we improve local public transport for residents and how can we make our waste disposal systems in the city more sustainable and how how can we afford to build more public housing. So some of that stuff might happen on the side, but it inevitably gets pushed down the priority list unless it's directly geared towards the Games. So we hear this constant rhetoric of, oh, but the Games is a really good catalyst to bring forward investment and it'll encourage more investment in public transport, etc. But the kind of infrastructure and services that you need to move huge masses of people around for a couple of weeks and to support a major event is not necessarily the same kinds of infrastructure and services that you need to support a city to be socially just and, and environmentally sustainable long-term. So we might end up actually investing in the, in the wrong kind of stuff. And, yeah, that's... That concern about the games being a political distraction and drawing the attention of our leaders away from more urgent priorities like climate justice and housing justice, it's probably the the biggest underlying concern. Every meeting that the Premier or the Lord Mayor goes to to discuss the games is one less meeting they're going to have about those other more urgent issues, and, and that's a real concern for a lot of people on the
7: ground. Yeah, you, you've articulated that very, very well. It is a massive distraction, I think, for some of the the realer issues. Um, and I just oh, have totally.
10: and, and, and also a big political distraction in terms of voters, right? The government, mm. you know, people are, are really struggling and are pissed off about a lot of stuff, and this is a very convenient distraction to to pacify the masses, so to speak.
7: Yeah, it's a it's a party, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. um, and I just have one more question for you: Are you going to be watching the the Tokyo 2020 Olympics?
10: I haven't been so far, I have I'm I really like playing sport to be honest, but not super keen on being a spectator. I'll be paying a little bit of attention to the costs and all that stuff. We've heard that the local Tokyo government has lost billions of dollars as a result of this game and that's because the agreement with the IOC tends to put all the risk on the host city and the host region, so I'll be paying attention to that, but to be honest I'm not too fussed about who actually
7: wins or what happens with the results. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Well, well, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Councillor, and we'll look forward to seeing what happens over the next decade.
10: Yeah, it's going to be an interesting time. Thanks a lot. Have a good one.
7: Thank
8: you. Wow, that was an incredible conversation there with um, Councillor Jacob Shree from Brisbane about the upcoming Olympics. It sounds like it's going to be such a massive... Uh, it's going to have such a massive impact on um, the city and not necessarily a, a positive one, right?
7: Yeah, for sure. It's it's going to be a wild ride, I think, over the next 10 years. Yeah.
8: Um, well, up next, um, I thought we'd go to a track. Uh, this next song is called Higher by Budura, uh who is a Kujumbara singer-songwriter from the Bodjalung Nation. Um, I really like his music. It's a mixture of gospel, soul, contemporary pop and R&B. This song, Higher, was co-written by Matt Corby and it came out earlier this year. Keep
1: taking me
8: You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. That was Higher by Butcherah.
7: Yeah, so up next, we've got a section from City Limits um, in which they'll be talking a bit about public housing. And so RMIT Professor Libby Porter will be analysing the public housing renewable, renewal projects uh, and Victoria's big housing build. And this interview is from City Limits, a weekly 3CR show hosted by Meg and Kevin.
11: Libby, I know you've got a few things you'd like to talk to us about, but but one of the items we wanted to raise, and and in fact I must say to you, I mentioned it earlier in the program, it isn't all bad on the housing front at the moment. There are some really good signs that the, the Financial Review reported last week that rich owners are raking in millions of dollars in gains by reselling luxury homes as little as seven months after buying them, and one mob made uh, $1.5 on a $4.5 investment in just a year, so uh, there's not much to complain about, obviously.
12: No, not at all, Kevin. It's um, great times if you're wealthy.
11: <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely, and on that, of course, that's one of the reasons we got you on, because the OECD uh, recently came down with a report that showed that Australia is now one of the one of, the, um, one of the countries in the world with the highest housing prices. That I think we're fourth or something in the world in prices. And, in fact, there's been stories in the past couple of days about massive increases in the past 12 months in house prices. So in terms of getting people into housing, it's becoming increasingly difficult, obviously. That's
12: right, yes. Um, and the, I mean I think the OECD report points out things that we kind of already knew in many respects. Um, and, and really I think the story here is the, the rising level of inequality exactly as you just painted there with um, more and more people who were uh, creating wealth from their housing um, and more and more people shut out from even the most basic ability to uh, to shelter themselves in a, in a safe and, and affordable and, and uh, you know, good way.
2: I don't know if this is a bit of a left field sort of question Libby but um, when did this become, when did housing become a thing that people profited from rather than lived in?
12: Oh that's a very interesting question. <laughs> I mean, sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah, cause
12: my, it, yeah. my take on this is, uh, and, and this is Relatively widely held um, amongst people who think in more critical terms about um, about housing. Mm. Housing much more than simply uh, a way to create wealth or um, a sort of roof over your head or a kind of built form expression, mm. much more than line or anything like that. Um, I mean, if you think of uh, the, the the colonial moment um, in Australia mm. a, and its long um, legacy and you know extended um, history and future, we mm. still live in a colonial moment in, in Australia, um, really the, the, the extraction of wealth from land, um, which housing is part of, began uh, on the invasion of, of um, Aboriginal land here mm. in Australia. Mm. That, is, you know, that, that was the beginning of the housing crisis. In Australia, from a, from a First Nations perspective, um, First Nations people have always been the people who first bore the brunt of, of a housing crisis. Mm-hmm. And we built a system that was entirely uh, coordinated around speculation on land, um, the ability to basically steal land. and then make a profit out of it. So all of the work that um, many of the early surveyors and early town planners and and early house builders did um, in a city like Melbourne, for example, where I am, uh, was um, very much around generating the ability to take wealth from something that they had stolen in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we saw really rapid rises in, in house prices and land prices, even in those early years, from 1835 when Hoddle laid out his grid, that we now walk around in the city centre of Melbourne. Um, just a few years later, people were making up to a 1,000% um, increases in, in their uh, extraction of wealth from the same, same piece of land when they flipped it. So we've been doing this for you know, nearly 200 years uh, here, here in this country. Uh, and so it's kind of, I, I think, sort of embedded in, our, in the way we think about what housing is. And that's why it's really difficult to
2: shift. That's really interesting. Thank you.
11: Yeah, just on that, the OECD report says supply has been rigid because of regulatory measures such as restrictive land-use regulations and restrictive uh, zoning in many cities, greater flexibility in land-use regulations and zoning, et cetera. They go on with that. And the Productivity Commission, in responding to it, urged state governments to cut development approval zones of approval times and to relax their highly prescriptive planning systems. So they really want us to give absolute carte blanche to develop and the rich I presume
12: Of course and this, look, this debate has been underway uh, certainly in Australia and elsewhere for literally decades uh, it's so tired um, and, and many of us are so tired of it. If, if you could solve housing affordability with supply we would have done it by now We have had massive increases in supply of housing year on year for decades Supply is not the problem Regulation is not the problem. The regulatory regime is there to ensure that all of us as citizens living in communities and society together have a set of values about what will constitute the right way to think about our our use of land and our relationship to, to places. That's what it's there for. If we start, and, and we have, it's not as if we haven't started um, pulling at the edges of that and, and unpicking it, uh, we, we start getting into all sorts of tricky territories. So the answer is, in my view, certainly not about um, reducing regulation and reducing red tape. That's the, the kind of classic easy reach um, that m- most governments um of most shades, actually, um, reach for. Uh, And and I think it's really important for listeners to remember that there is... We talk about um, reducing uh, red tape and those kinds of things to, to help housing supply. What we don't talk about is the ways in which government su- supports actually hugely with, with enormous um, forms of subsidies like negative gearing, for example. So government um, is, is intrinsically involved in bolstering the wealth creation that you mentioned at the outset, um, Kevin, in your introduction, of people who are able to extract large amounts of wealth by, you know, flipping homes quickly or by negatively gearing, doing all of those kinds of things that we know to be wrong. So the idea that government needs to get out and let, you know, the public... Uh, sorry, let the let the private sector do its thing um, is, is a kind of furphy, really. It's a, it's a nonsense. Um, and as I say, if we were going to... Support solve the housing affordability problem with um, supply, we would have done that well and truly by now. The answer is not there. Uh, We need to look at other kinds of alternatives, other kinds of measures, um, and public housing has to be one of those that has to be right in the centre of it.
11: Which answers the next question, because I was going to raise the fact that the OECD and the Productivity Commission looking for solutions like relaxing regulations. No-one's come up with the idea that just maybe public housing could solve the problem.
12: That, that's exactly right. And, of course, that, this is a subject dear to my heart um, and, and dear to many people's hearts, actually, that, uh, that we keep, um, and, and, and governments, I think, keep ignoring. Uh, and we need to, you know, do this work of, of keeping it front and centre of, of the, the public discussion uh, because we, it's so easy to get distracted by, you know, fancy financial models that um, someone invents to, you know, deliver X number of affordable housing units on X site, you know, with this, these are the kinds of conversations we see in the media all the time. Um, and, you know, look, there might be a place for those kinds of things, but at, at its core, what we're talking about here is that housing is a, is a human right. Um, it, we all need a place to to call home. We all need proper shelter that's warm and and that's within our ability to pay for it, if we think of that's what affordable means when it boils down
7: That was housing activist and RMIT professor Libby Porter calling on the government to act on the public housing crisis. And you can catch the rest of that interview at 3CR's City Limits program, which is hosted by Meg and Kevin, uh, every Wednesday at 9am. Or you can hop on the website 3cr.org.au forward slash City Limits.
8: Thanks for your company this morning. We've come to the end of... Uh, 3CR Breakfast today here on Monday, Um, make sure you tune in to 3CR Breakfast for the rest of the week um, starting with tomorrow's breakfast show at 7am and if you'd like more details on um, all of our segments from today's show, you can check out our podcast and the show notes on 3cr.org.au slash Monday Breakfast
7: Absolutely and I hope everyone has a safe and a healthy lockdown, and we'll catch you next week. This is Jacob
8: and Funk. Earth
2: Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and Earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton While you're there, check out Radical Coffee a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au